Listen, last week we were in John chapter 7. I don't know if you remember this. And I'll tell you, even without looking, how chapter 7 ends. The last verse in John chapter 7 says this, and everyone went to his home. And now I'd like to call your attention to the beginning of chapter 8. I want to show you something by way of contrast. Keep in mind how the previous chapter ended. It says, and everyone went to his home. Hot on the heels of it, we now read in John chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. I think the inspired writer John juxtaposed these two phrases to call our attention to this fact. Everyone had a place, but not this Jesus. You see, uh, he didn't find his home here. In fact, he left his home to come here. And so instead of going to his home, as did everyone else, he went to the place where while here he felt most at home. It was the Mount of Olives. Frequently, he retired there for prayer. He got away from it all to a private spot whereby he could be with the Father and pour out his heart. I have been to the Mount of Olives, as have a number of you. This is true. This is not a fable. This is not Greek mythology. This is the real deal. You can stand at, you can pray on the Mount of Olives, just as the Lord did. So he went to this place. It wasn't his real home. He would soon return to his real home. In fact, about six months from the time uh, of this text, it's talking about a certain chronological time. You can compute it. And about six months from this point, he'll be home with the Father. But until then, he had no, no home to go to. And so there he was on the Mount of Olives in communion with his Father. And from that location, if you've been there, uh, you can verify what I'm saying. He could look out uh, across a valley called the Kidron Valley and he could look into Jerusalem, and he could see there, elevated above it all, the temple. And he could see the people going there, and he could see the hustle and bustle of it all. And, and, and he, came, he came also to win those people and to provide for them a means of salvation and forgiveness. And what he was doing at this point I think was looking out on the city of Jerusalem and the temple precincts and all the rest. And he was using this time to pray so as to be prepared for the events which would befall him the very next morning. And those events are the ones we'll read about now. Look, verse 2, John chapter 8. Early in the morning he came again into the temple. He had prayed the day, the evening before. He was prepared for what's going to happen here. In the morning, he came into the temple, not the actual temple building, the courtyards of the temple. Specifically, he went to teach under porches, which were enclosed on one side, opened on the other. They were covered and the roof was supported by columns or colonnades, one of the most frequented by itinerant rabbis or teachers 
as was this Yeshua, this Jesus, was called the portico or porch of Solomon. I don't know why it's called that. I don't think it has any direct connection to Solomon, but that's what it's called. And, and there he went uh, to teach, as was his fashion. And the text tells us, and all the people were coming to him. You, they were fascinated. He was, he was the atypical rabbi. I mean, he didn't go to their schools. He didn't get their degrees. He was not authorized by the conventional rabbis. And he spoke in a way none of the others did. Part of the rabbinical custom in those days was to quote other rabbis. So an esteemed scholarly rabbi was such because he was aware of what previous rabbis said. Previous rabbis ruled uh, or adjudicated a particular situation, and these rabbis would refer to them. They would say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and then Rabbi so-and-so said that. But Rabbi Jesus never did that. You know how he taught? Like this. I say. He didn't need to refer to anyone else as an authority. He was the ultimate authority. And people saw this qualitative difference in the manner in which he expressed himself. And not only that, he could kind of back up what he said with marvelous works. And the works really were the backdrop for the words. His words were sensational. It promised people healing and forgiveness and heaven. How do you say something like this unless you can authenticate it? And this he did with marvelous signs and wonders. And so on this particular occasion in the morning, people came to this place to hear from Rabbi Jesus. And based upon our prior times together in John's Gospel, you may remember the time is something called Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. I mentioned to you last week when we got together, it began the seven-day feast, and it is just about over tonight. And this was a time when Jews from all over gathered around in Jerusalem to thank God for his provision during their wilderness wanderings. And even today, Jews live in or build uh, booths near their homes to reflect on God's provision during their 40 years of wilderness wandering. So it's during this time, Feast of Tabernacles, the city is filled with pilgrims, very, very crowded, that the people were coming to him from all over. And we read, he sat down and began to teach them. So I want to do something because I just feel a little uh, um, wild and woolly. So would you stand up if you don't mind? Just, or even if you do mind, w would you just do it uh, for a second? Uh, so I want to show you something. Um, so you, you're standing, and uh, I'm going to sit, okay? It's only going to be an hour, hour and a half. Don't, don't worry about it. Folks, I got to tell you something. This is how it happened in those days. The teacher sat while the students stood. I kind of like it. sort of a good deal. How are you feeling so far? Okay, thanks for playing. You can sit down. I'm telling you, that's exactly how it happened. So Rabbi Jesus would have gone to this place. He would have sat down on not necessarily a seat, a step, just as I did, only it would be stone, and people would gather around. They would form kind of a semicircle around him and 
get as close as they could and so that they could hear, and that's what happened. So the text says, he sat down and began to teach them. And verse 3 says, the scribes and the Pharisees, you know about them, those are the Jewish religious leaders. Scribes and Pharisees, here's what they did. They brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher or rabbi, this woman, visualize it, she's deposited like a piece of baggage right there in the midst. People are standing, the Lord is sitting. Between the people standing and the Lord who is sitting, boom, they deposit this woman allegedly caught in a pretty serious sin. They say to Yeshua, Rabbi Jesus, this woman, this woman has been caught in adultery. So as to emphasize the seriousness of it all, they say, in the very act. Now in the law, law of Moses they're referring to, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? <clears throat> Please imagine the scene. Uh, the Lord is sitting and teaching. Uh, the people are probably giving him their undivided attention for the reasons I shared earlier. He spoke like no one spoke. I mean, if you were there listening directly to the Lord Jesus, would you be distracted? No, no, no. They were absolutely transfixed and focused on this special rabbi. And the religious leaders uh, violate all principles of social protocol. And they just push through. There's a crowd of people, you see. The lucky ones were closest to this magnificent rabbi, this teacher. But they don't worry about who's up front and who's not. They push through. In order to deposit this woman in the midst, they had to have done that. Where was he in his teaching? Was he at the beginning? Was he at the middle? Was he at the Where was it? He's speaking. They do not wait for the right moment, for a pause, for an intermission. They come entirely uninvited and unannounced. I want you to just get this. They just intrude upon the scene. They disrupt it all. That's what religion is, by the way. It's just an intrusion when it comes to a personal relationship with Almighty God. Religion just intrudes upon it and messes it all up. That's what they do. Meanwhile, what do you think this woman is thinking? I guarantee she's making eye contact with no one. She's thrown down. She's not standing at all. She's weakened by the accusation and impending penalty. She's being publicly humiliated. My guess is she is burying her face in her arms, wishing to die, wishing somehow not to be there. Oh, would that it all would go away. And the religious leaders at this point seem not even to be uh, uh, interested in her. They put this question, unannounced it's an interruption. They put this question to 
Rabbi Jesus, what then do you say about this? The law of Moses calls for her death, capital punishment by stoning. What do you, how do you weigh in on it? Oh my goodness. I'm sure that took him by surprise. No, because remember, he prepared for today by praying yesterday. You and I will be most prepared for tomorrow by being prayerful today. No, this didn't take him by surprise at all. He knew they were coming. He was prepared for it all. And so they remind him, according to the law of Moses, that the woman's crime carried the death penalty. And a crime of this magnitude, one carrying the death penalty, would have to be confirmed by evidence, by witnesses. Therefore, they say, she has been caught in adultery. This is not hearsay. Here's the evidence, say they, eyewitness evidence. She has been caught in adultery in the very act. Forgive me, but this makes me wonder how. You thinking that too? Forgive me for being so cynical, but I'm just wondering, did they pay someone to engage in this activity with her? Let me ask you a question. How many people does it take to commit an act of adultery? You know, last time I checked, it's two. We only have one here. Where's the partner? Did they set up a guy? Did they then look through the window? Let me get even more cynical. Could her partner have been one of them? You thinking that? Man, you're as low as I am. I mean, this thing just stinks to me. This does not taste good at all. This is a setup. How do they catch her in the act? Do religious people have nothing else to do but look into someone's bedroom window? What's up? I'll tell you what's up. They are so intent on extinguishing the fire. They are so intent on eliminating this uh, competitor to their fame and fortune, this rabbi Jesus. It's a setup. They are setting him. She's a pawn. She's not a person in their eyes. And so they ask this particular question. All of it was designed for him to answer. Remember, there's a crowd there. It's during Sukkot. The city would swell with population. Lots of people were there listening to Rabbi Jesus. In the courtyard of the temple, thousands of people would be there. They ask him the question because they want to obligate him to give an answer. The law of Moses, say they, commands us to stone such women. What then do you say? So why that question? What is their, what is their motive? Well, we don't have to guess. Uh, we're told in the very next verse, verse 6, they were saying this, testing him. They were not seeking clarification of the law of Moses. They did not want information. They were not trying to, to grow. 
Here's the motive. They were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. That's their motive there. Requires no interpretation. It is stated there. That's their illicit motive. But by this is not new. They had challenged their own Messiah on a number of occasions before with trick questions. For instance, one time they came to him with a trick question regarding the resurrection. Why do I say it's a trick question? Because most of these folk didn't even believe in the resurrection. So here's what they say one time. Perhaps you remember. They said, uh, Rabbi, there was a woman. She ended up marrying one at a time seven brothers. You know, she'd marry one, he would die, according to a very interesting text of Scripture. The next brother has to take her on as wife to sustain her and so on. All seven of them died, which makes me think, what in the world was she cooking? <laughs> so anyway, uh, this actually happened. So seven of them die, and the religious people come to Jesus and they say, in the resurrection, which they don't even hold to, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? That's what they say. And his answer, maybe you remember, he said, you neither know the power of God nor the scriptures. He doesn't mess with that game. You don't know the power of God and you surely don't know the word of God. Holy moly, he said that to the religious leadership. There was another occasion one time when they tried to set him up and the issue was taxation, remember that? And he, uh, I'll just summarize it, he, he said to them, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is, what is God. So, so challenging him publicly to frame him that they might have a basis for accusation is not, is not a new thing. However, this is new. What's happening here in the text? I'll tell you why, why, why this is new. There's more at stake. You know what's at stake? Her life. <laughs> a, a, a woman's life is at stake. And his reputation as one claiming to be Messiah. So this one is a much more weighty challenge than the previous ones. Now here's what's going on. The Lord had previously taught things like this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He never said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, as is this lady, and I will uh, smash your brains out with a stone. See, so his teaching on compassion flies in the face of the application of the penalty required by Mosaic law. He said, come to me, everyone who's having trouble. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to preach at you. I won't give you a boot in the behind. I surely won't kill you. Come to me. You'll find from me rest. They know this. They heard his teaching. So now they're saying, but the law of Moses said, rest, schmest, forget it. Stoning is required by the law of Moses. What do you say about this, Rabbi Jesus? So would he, in compliance with the law of Moses, stone her? Would he comply? Would he participate in it? If so, he would have violated his teaching on compassion, the likes of which I just shared with you. 
And then they would say, you can't believe him. He's talking to you about forgiveness and compassion and love, some love. He's picked up the heaviest stone. So they think they have uh, confronted him with a dilemma he cannot get out of. They're pretty proud of themselves at this time. How could he, you see, show love to a sinner without violating the requirements of the law with, with reference to a sinner, you see? So what's he going, what's he going to do? This is what he did, according to the second part of verse 6. Very interesting. But Jesus stooped down. See if you can visualize it. He's sitting. He stands. He stoops down. That's what he does. It, the text says here, he stooped down, and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. In the sand, he traced something with his finger. He stoops. He, he writes. My guess is he's making no eye contact with them at all. He really seems to be about his own business, and he really seems to have his own agenda. And he really seems not to be nervous about the so-called entrapment with which they think they have trapped him. And I wonder, don't you, what did he write? Anybody know? Hey, what do you think, Brian? Brian, come over here for a second, because that guy is onto something. Usually, Brian is not right, but I think in this case, <laughs> so therefore, we got to make something of that. Tell the people what you think the Lord was writing. I think, Lord Jesus, he stooped down. Bear in mind that it was God's finger that wrote the law on the Ten Commandments. And he's writing down names and places of the very men who are there trying to trap him. And the men can look down and they can see their names and they can see their offenses. And the conviction of God reaches their hearts and they have to walk away. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. I don't know this for sure, but I could not have put it better than Brian did. And I think there's biblical support for what Brian said. Can I read this to you? And when Brian said, he thinks the Lord was writing the very names of uh, these people. They were accusing her, and in what the Lord was doing, he was accusing them. And the reason I, I think Brian is onto something is, listen, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord. We don't know this for sure. We were not there. But I think what Brian said is very consistent with what Jeremiah said hundreds of years before. So it's very likely he did that. Or, I don't want to ruin this, because I think Brian's explanation really is good, but maybe it was nothing legible. Maybe it was just, let's call it, sanctified doodling. Why? For the silence of it all. 
Have you ever, have you ever realized how loud and impactful silence can be? I'll prove it to you. Let's try it. It is uncomfortable. You know what it obligates you to do? Think. Reflect. And maybe that's why he did what he did. Hubbub, hustle and bustle, jostling for position, a crowd, religious leaders pushing through, a woman undoubtedly weeping, accusers, boom, he shuts it all down and forces them to go inside. They cannot be distracted by sights and sounds. They could only hear maybe the voice of their own conscience. Whatever he wrote did not stop them. And so we read in verse seven, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. <clears throat> Instead of passing judgment on the woman, he passes judgment on those who would judge the woman. Wow. They present him, you see, with a legal dilemma. He presents them with a moral dilemma. She committed sin? All right then let he who among you is without sin cast the first stone. Wow. He showed them they were not fit to execute the very penalty they were so eager to execute. They weren't fit. And again, verse 8, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, look what happened. They began to go out one by one, in what form? Beginning with the older ones. The older religious leaders departed first. Why? Because they had enough life experience to realize they lost. They had no grounds of accusation. They've been had. The ruths which they planned, orchestrated, and thought for sure would be the end of Rabbi Jesus, proved not to be. The naive younger religious leaders with less life experience might have thought we can still make something of this. Let's pursue it. But the older ones knew it's over. They've been defeated. And so they went out. They left, beginning with the older ones. All of their plans, they were evil plans, were absolutely destroyed by the all wise God in a second. So sadly, they leave. And in so doing, they walk away from forgiveness. And the text says he was left alone and the woman where she had been in the midst. Was it just the Lord and the woman? Oh, no, 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 no. He was left alone in the sense that the religious leaders departed. The crowd is still there. But when the text says he was left alone with the woman, it's as if nobody else at that point was 
the focus of his attention. It was as if this whole world of pilgrims didn't exist. It's this woman whom the religious leaders thought was chattel property, but he knew had worth and value because she was created in his own image. And it was as if nobody else was there at this time but he who could save this woman who stood so sorely in need of salvation. Do you have a God who can pick you out of a crowd? Yeah, people say, I believe in God. I believe, okay, good. What is your God like? My God is the Almighty. He spoke all reality into existence as the men of praise so beautifully sang. He's the Alpha and Omega. He has no beginning nor any end. He is not a created being. He's, ex he's self-existent. And that God can pick me out of a crowd. Do you have a God like that? You can. You ought to. Why settle for a lesser God? And so the Lord Jesus focused his attention on this woman who had been deposited before him in the midst of the crowd. She had his undivided attention because she had value and worth to him, though not to the religious leaders. They were interested in finding a ground of accusation against him. He was interested in her. And so we read in verse 10, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? I must tell you this. Whenever you read a question uttered by the Lord Jesus in the Bible, it is never because he's on a fact-finding mission. He never asks a question because he lacks the answer to it. He's searching for information. Never, never, never. He asks a question so that the one to whom the question is put has an opportunity to answer it. So he asks this woman, where are your condemners? Did no one condemn you? And she said, maybe she picked up her head at that point and looked around. They're gone. And so she said, no one, Lord. Who condemns you? Who condemns no one, Lord. You see, he wanted her to say that, to get out of the story just for a second. Could you say that? Who condemns you? Who condemns you? Could you say? No one, Lord. And on what basis? Why leave here tonight without being able to say, no one condemns me, Lord. And what is the basis? You were penalized for me. You suffered for me. You were condemned on the cross for me. And so the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll bet she could hardly believe what she just said by way of answer. Who condemns you? Does no one... No one, Lord. Three words that were about to change her life. And Jesus said, and neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, sin no more. Listen, listen. If this was reversed, it wouldn't be such good news. If the Lord said, hey, you, stop sinning. And then maybe if you pull it off, I won't condemn you. That would not be called good news. Because who here could stop sinning? So instead, he reverses it. He says, 
I do not condemn you. Let that be the motivation for you to live an entirely different life. If you're not motivated that way, you may not be saved by Jesus. If you're motivated by guilt and fear and shame and all the rest, you're improperly motivated. The only legitimate biblical motivation for living a life of holiness and obedience is that you already have been given the status of being free, forgiven, clean, not condemned. And what does that do? It fills you with a desire to say thank you to the God who has forgiven you. The motivation is entirely different. So that's what the Lord says to this particular woman. And who knows what she is feeling. My goodness, what compassion has been shown to her by this marvelous Lord Jesus. But what about justice? I mean, there still is uh, this issue of the seventh commandment, which says thou shalt not commit adultery. He didn't really deal with that one. What is the divine solution to the dilemma he was faced with, to this humanly unresolvable dilemma? I mean, you and I can't resolve it. Now, I'd like to tell you as we draw to a close how he resolved it, but I need you to stand once again. This is just unbelievable, isn't it? We got you. We all have our ups and downs, don't we? And so there we go. So here, just stand where you are, but... Um, so without hurting anybody, can you extend your left hand out to your side? Yeah, just be careful not to knock anyone out. Uh, okay, there you go. So imagine, if you would, um, that uh, your left hand represents the compassion of God, the grace of God, left hand. And now would you extend your right hand out to the side? Again, be careful that you don't hurt anybody. And imagine that uh, that hand uh, represents the justice of God. You have just seen the solution to this humanly unresolvable dilemma. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, he showed his grace and compassion. He died for our sin. On the other hand, he showed his adherence to the law of Moses. He died for sin. The cross is the solution to this otherwise humanly unresolvable dilemma. And can you retain that position just for one more second? Because I want to close with this. Um, that's how much God loves you. Look, look, look. There. Oh, God, do you love me? I love you this much. You see? You see? So, so now I really mean it. We will close. You, you can relax, but don't sit because you're, you're on your way out. I don't want I'm concerned about your knees. Um, where are you in this story? If you were to put yourself in the, in the story, are you like the people in the crowd? They watched forgiveness but they did not personally enter into it? Or are you like the religious leaders? They walked away from forgiveness. You may do that in the next few moments. Or are you like the woman who accepted the Lord's forgiveness? Please be sure you put yourself in the right place in the story. Don't walk away from forgiveness tonight. 
as we take leave of one another. Make your way to the back room we call the Connection Center. You'll be greeted by people there. You could talk to them about your situation. They will pray with you. Just make sure you're in the right position in this story because it's not legend. This story is our story. Are you just hearing and seeing thoughts about forgiveness? Are you seeing others who are forgiven? Are you walking away or are you saying, ah, I'm that woman. And but for God's grace, yes, I deserve the full penalty of God's righteous law to befall me. But I want to be the woman of whom the Lord Jesus said, who condemns you? Nobody, neither do I. From now on, sin no more. So Lord Jesus, this is our prayer even tonight. As you, in the power of your Holy Spirit, go through our assemblage here, it would be a terribly sad thing if even one person who knows better would walk away from you who stand ready to forgive that person even tonight. So I pray, O oh God, in as powerful and clear a way as you communicated with that needy woman in John's gospel, you would communicate to the hearts of anyone here tonight who, like that woman, feels condemned, is filled with guilt and shame, and is uncertain about their standing with you. I pray, O oh God, that person would walk just a few steps to the back, spend a few minutes with someone there who could help that person, even tonight, to walk away from this place like that woman, free from condemnation, free to live an entirely new life by your grace and by your power. Thank you, O oh God, that as you were with that woman, you are with each of us here tonight who wishes you to forgive us just as you forgave her. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.